Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. China confusion. President Trump confirms the trade deal's intact after his advisor sparks fears that it could be off. Lockdown loosening, Boris Johnson announces major reopenings in July and arrested development. The former Wirecard CEO in police custody over the missing billions. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again. Fantastic to have you with us as always. Yesterday, New York City. Today, the UK. Prime Minister Boris Johnson further easing COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, as I mentioned, which of course means New Yorkers can now get a haircut. Brits can get that all-important pint. Details of that coming up. But first, US futures have been on a trade deal-related tumble overnight after headlines, as I mentioned there, that suggested that White House trade advisor Pete Navarro thought the trade deal might be off. The good news is, uh, as you can see, futures have recovered. Peter Navarro said his comments were taken wildly out of context, and President Trump also weighed in and calmed nerves too. More context on this coming right up. Asian stocks, meanwhile, recovering their early session losses too. Hong Kong actually was the outperformer, up, as you can see, more than 1.5%, thanks in part to a 5% rally in Tencent, which actually hit record highs overnight. The internet and online gaming giant clearly benefiting from lockdown restrictions too. It shares, in fact, up more than 50% from the March lows. It's now Asia's most valuable firm. Sentiment also getting a boost here too from factory activity data from all around the world. Australian manufacturing is almost in expansionary territory once again in Europe. France and the UK are back in expansion mode too. Germany almost there as well and a strong performance in the European session too. Bulls point to encouraging numbers like this to justify the rally that we've seen in stocks since we hit the three-month lows exactly three months today in fact. And taking a look at uh, the US markets here, since then the S&P has risen by some 40%. But it's not just about stocks. All prices have trebled copper prices are up 30%. And if we look at the foreign exchange markets, things like the Norwegian krona have gained 20% against the dollar. The Aussie dollar, some 18% versus the US dollar. That's a lot of gains. Meanwhile, President Trump is promising the China deal is still on. He stepped in following this exchange on Fox News. Do you think that the president sort of, I mean, he obviously really wanted to hang on to this trade deal as much as possible, and he wanted them to make good on the promises because there had been progress made on that trade deal. But given everything that's happened and all the things you just listed, is that over? It's over, yes. I think that uh, here's, I think, the turning point. 
They came here on January 15th to sign that trade deal. Yep. And that was a full two months after they knew the virus mm -hmm. was out and about. Christine Romans joins me now. I have to say, Christine, when I watched that interview back, I think he was taken out of context, too. But the president confirming the trade deals on the reaction in stock markets, though, suggested to me investors are coping, quite frankly, with as much as they can. The idea that yeah. the trade deal might be off was just a little bit too much last night. You know, it just shows you how sensitive, how touchy investors are to any kind of idea that that phase one trade deal could be going in the wrong direction. And I agree with you. I've listened to that exchange over and over again. Uh, you know, she asked him about progress uh, in implementing the trade deal. And he he said, yes, it's over. I think he meant progress is over. And when he gave a statement later, he said, you know, look, there he was speaking of the lack of trust uh, between the United States and the Chinese Communist Party after the lies he says that they gave about the origin of the uh, of the virus. So he's trying to clean it up. The president making it very clear that this deal is intact. Robert Lighthizer, who who actually inked this deal, of course, last week in front of Congress, he seemed very optimistic and confident that this was going to going to get done. But, you know, when you talk to agriculture groups, they're worried. Will the Chinese be able to really step up ag purchases the way they said? Will there really be the enforcement of some of these mechanisms the way they promised in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, that's why the markets are so nervous, because they're not sure. And of course, it's an election year. And we know whichever political party you look at here, China bashing, criticizing China, flies with the public and certainly in, in Congress as well. Now, speaking of Congress, we also had Larry Kudlow suggesting that we could see by the end of next month some deal on Congress to provide further support. That's good news here. And that's one thing that the market wants to hear about as well. You know, what does that right. support look like? The Democrats would like to see state aid for sure. I mean, they're coming down many of these state governments right now. I mean, they've got to figure out if they're going to be having massive furloughs and layoffs uh, on the state level of these state employees. And these are, well, they're voters, right? They're people who work in fire departments, people who work in police departments, people who work in schools, uh, people who clean the streets. So these are important, important political considerations to make here. The Democrats are really pushing that side. The president would like a payroll tax cut or a payroll tax holiday. Um, you know, Republicans would like to get rid of the $600 a week extra in stimulus money for uh, for people who are out of work, but maybe replace that with some other. So the contours of the discussion are there. Uh, Larry Kudlow seems optimistic that they will be able to hammer something out soon. I think the bottom line for investors and for markets is that more is coming. Yes, you can't control the health risks, but at least on the stimulus side, if you can see more coming, then that will help here too for individuals as well, never mind investors. Christine Romans, thank you nice so to much see you. for that. All right, South Korea has been credited with keeping the spread of COVID-19 relatively limited, but now officials say a second wave of infection is breaking in the capital Seoul. Health authorities say that although the numbers are still relatively low, they've been rising since last month after a national holiday. Paula Hancocks is in Seoul with all the details. Countries around the world have been warning of a possible second wave of coronavirus in the autumn or in the winter. But South Korea says that they believe they are currently experiencing their second wave. Now, Korea's CDC did clarify somewhat this Tuesday, saying that they're using a different standard to that of uh, the World Health Organization, the WHO. They're looking at regions and the flow of spread. So what they've said is they believe their first wave was from February to April. Uh, that was mostly in the southeast of the country. 
And then with mass testing, with contact tracing, those numbers decreased dramatically. They were experiencing 10 or less new infections every day for some time. But then they say the second wave, they believe, started after the May holiday when social distancing rules were relaxed. Uh, and that is why we are seeing an increase now. Now, there are a number of regional outbreaks, they say, not a large scale infection, but different clusters around the capital. We've seen them in uh, in logistics centres, in schools, in churches uh, and in many different areas. Uh, officials are struggling to try and stop these clusters. In fact, we just heard from Seoul's mayor saying uh, that he is trying to figure out if strict social distancing needs to be put back in place to try and stop this second wave. He has also said uh, on Monday that he believes that if there are more than 30 local transmission cases within Seoul itself for three consecutive days, then strict social distancing does need to be put back in place. Now, one other cluster to mention as well in South Korea, a Russian-flagged ship docked off the southeastern uh, port of Busan on June 21st. Now, 16 of 21 of the Russian crew have since tested positive for coronavirus. And there's more than 170 South Korean port workers in that area that are now being tested as well as they are believed to have come into contact with them. Paula Hancocks, CNN Seoul. Okay, let's move on. The British Prime Minister has set the end date of the three-month COVID-19 lockdown in the UK from July 4th. The two-metre rule will be replaced by one metre plus, and people will be able to go to the cinema, get haircuts. And this is also key, as we've mentioned, go out for a pint. Mr Speaker, I can tell the House that we will also reopen restaurants and pubs. Hallelujah! All hospitality indoors will be limited to table service and our guidance will encourage minimal staff and customer contact. We will ask businesses to help NHS Test and Trace respond to any local outbreaks by collecting contact details from customers, as happens in other countries, and we will work with the sector to make this manageable. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, the Prime Minister said the hibernation phase is over. These are pretty dramatic steps and they kick in, I believe, early July. 4th of July, and most of these measures only apply to England rather than the whole of the UK. But from the 4th of July, a huge reopening for all sorts of businesses, largely in the hospitality sector, that have been shut for over three months now. Now, the list includes things like pubs, hotels, hair salons, hooray, uh, and cinemas, all able to reopen. Crucially for these businesses and many others, also the rule on social distancing is being relaxed from two metres to one metre plus. Now, as you heard there from the Prime Minister, there will be measures that need to be brought into place for many of these businesses to keep safe for their customers, for their staff, whether that is plexiglass partitions or facial coverings. Uh, and not every businesses, not every business, I'm sorry, are, are yet able to reopen. The ones that are still shut, gyms, swimming pools, nightclubs, uh, anywhere really where it's hard to maintain uh, even one metre of social distance. Now, in addition to this, Julia, there was also uh, an announcement for socialising in England. Two households can now meet up inside, inside a home, 
Overnight stays are allowed and you don't have to just pick one household. You can have different ones each day. You don't have to pick your favorite side of the family. So that will be very welcome news. Of course, all of this came with a massive warning from the Prime Minister. Lockdown can be reimposed at a local or a national level if it is needed, if there are big flare-ups, if that transmission rate for the virus goes too high. Julia? Absolutely. I mean, it's important to get the economy restarted and get people back out there, but you have to remain flexible if we see uh, cases rising and that happening all around the world, of course. Anna, I noticed that we uh, give you all the toughest jobs. You're outside a drinking establishment there. Have you been speaking <laughs> to people who are going in there and what are they saying about their confidence levels, their willingness actually to be inside rather than sitting outside? I know, Julia, once again, in the name of journalism, I have gone to the pub and it's actually my local, this one in London, the Black Lion pub. It's been reopened for a few weeks now just for takeaway pints. No one's allowed to sit inside or in the beer garden. And it's done really well. There's been huge demand because we're right by the riverside where people can walk along with their pints. So these are the people I thought would be very keen on some of the reopening measures. I have just spoken to them. We haven't cut the sound in time, but I can tell you it was actually a really mixed response. Plenty of people saying... They wouldn't mind eating outside a restaurant. They're still not sure about going inside. Plenty of people said absolutely not to a cinema trip. Uh, so even with these new measures, even though the government says it's OK, the problem for the sector will be the consumer appetite. And already we've heard from UK hospitality today that even with the relaxing of measures in August, a key month for this sector, they expect demand to be down at least 65%. Julia? Wow, yeah digging themselves out from a steep, steep decline there. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for that. We will continue to track progress. A hairdresser next. What do you think? <laughs> Maybe. I can't wait, Julia. Get me in there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Anna. All right, let's move on to some new developments in the Wirecard scandal. This just in. Prosecutors in Germany say former CEO Marcus Braun will be released on bail. He was arrested on suspicion of having inflated the company's balance sheet. Fred Plankton is in Berlin. Fred, extraordinary story. Admission, of course, from payments firm Wirecard this week that the missing $2 billion may never have existed at all. We were talking about this on the show yesterday. What more do we know about this arrest? Well, well, we do know that he's uh, going to be released on bail. You're absolutely right. He apparently has to post 5 million uh, euros uh, in bond, and he has to check in with the police uh, every week. Now, the uh, prosecutor uh, in Munich, where all this is taking place, uh, said that they don't believe that there's a flight risk because he, in fact, turned himself in. Apparently, that happened last night. Of course, we only learned about the arrest this morning, but apparently the arrest warrant was issued last night, and he also turned himself in last night. And I mean, of course, this is a gigantic case. As you've noted, this is absolutely extraordinary with the two billion, almost two billion euros, a little over two million dollars, two billion dollars, apparently simply just not existing somewhere in the financial markets in the Philippines where the authorities there say that money simply isn't there. Now, Marcus Brown, of course, has resigned or has resigned on Friday as uh, the CEO of that company. The chief operating officer was also sacked over the weekend. And the authorities who are investigating now say they do believe that there could be others involved in this uh, as well. So certainly it's a gigantic issue. And I think, Julia, you know, we know what a big company this is for Germany. Some of our viewers may not. I mean, this is one of the 30 biggest companies here in this country. It actually replaced Commerzbank on the DAX a couple of years ago. And I can tell you from just having checked uh, here uh, the local media and also some of the press conference that the German economy minister, for instance, is absolutely irate. 
um, Mr. Altmaier, he's not someone you want to get on the wrong side of. He said this is something that absolutely needs to be clarified. A huge embarrassment for Germany as a financial center and certainly also for Germany as far as oversight is concerned. In fact, Germany's oversight body, Bafin, just issued a statement also acknowledging that they made big mistakes apparently in the oversight of this company. But they also say that auditors failed and the supervisory board failed as well. So, yeah, I mean, this is what we're witnessing right now is is, is really almost – uh, a financial market earthquake here in this country trying to deal uh, with the fallout from what's going on there at Wirecard, Julia. Yes, a web of strategic failures here and uh, many questions that still uh, remain unanswered. Fred, great job. Thank you so much for uh, bringing us up to speed with that story. Fred Pryken in Berlin there. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Plenty more to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where we're heading for a positive open for stock markets this morning, following gains for stocks yesterday in Monday's session, with the Nasdaq, in fact, hitting fresh record highs, as you can see, gaining more than 1% yesterday. It spiked, in fact, more than 50% since plunging to multi-year lows three months ago today. We can chalk it up to the extraordinary and ongoing crisis support from the Federal Reserve and other global central banks since the start of the global pandemic, at least in part, the Fed's multi-trillion dollar asset purchase program has injected crucial liquidity to credit markets, perhaps even preventing a second economic depression. Some fear this unprecedented support could fuel asset bubbles and worsen economic inequality. The Fed arguing that its actions have helped a wide range of Americans plenty to discuss this morning and I'm very excited to say we're joined by Mary Daly, the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Mary, fantastic to have you on the show and a very early good morning to you too. I appreciate you waking up so early to speak to us this morning. Um, Of course, good morning. Good morning. There's been plenty of column inches dedicated in recent weeks to the rise that we've seen on Wall Street and the the criticism, I'll call it that, that actually the Federal Reserve's actions have done more to support Wall Street than Main Street, as we call it, and the real economy. What's your view on that and, and what context do we need to understand? Well, that's a great question. The context, the main context, is that we're all interrelated. There really isn't this bright line that separates Main Street from Wall Street. And let me give you an example. So we lowered the funds rate, as you know, to near zero. But that decrease in the funds rate and the interest rates only gets to mortgage interest holders, mortgage borrowers, when financial markets work. So if we don't repair the financial markets, ensure they have liquidity, they can't pass along the interest rate changes to households and businesses that need them the most. So in this way, we're really all connected in our support for the economy supports everyone. So it's a case of fixing financial markets first and then the transition mechanism to getting money and the benefits out to ordinary individuals works better, too. Right. I I think of it as the plumbing of the financial system. If we fix the plumbing and ensure it works, then people get the resources that they need. And that's important right now. Added criticism here, though, is that it even inadvertently fuels inequality. The wealthiest are those that own stocks, that own financial assets and and beyond. It's the weaker 
that don't and they're still waiting in many cases for the money and they're going to continue to struggle given the amount of jobs that we've seen lost. Even inadvertently, does the Federal Reserve and its policies fuel and exacerbate inequality? Not in my judgment. The way I see it is if you go back to right before the crisis started, the health crisis, mm. we were in the longest expansion in U.S. history, and that expansion was lifting so many people into employment, out of poverty, and allowing them economic mobility. And that's ultimately the Fed's number one job. Right now, we're providing emergency support, but our number one goals are the dual mandate goals of full employment and price stability. And ultimately, our job is to ensure that every American who wants a job can get one. So that's where our eyes are set. That's where our minds are, are headed. But right now, of course, we're fighting a, a global pandemic. And so it's emergency support that we're offering. It's a great point that you raise as well, is that the Federal Reserve has one job and you're not alone in providing support. Congress also has to provide their version of support at this moment, too. There are those analysts out there that believe if the Congress doesn't step up and do more to support the economy, that we could see some kind of downturn beyond the initial bounce back, a double dip recession. Do you share that concern? Well, what I see out there is just a tremendous amount of uncertainty. The mm. way that we have to live right now is that the virus determines the speed at which the economy is allowed to recover. So we're seeing some early signs that as we lift restrictions, people go out, and that's really good news. The momentum of the economy is still there. But we could have to go back in if the virus um, resurges, or we could have to remain socially distant, and that can undermine confidence. So right now there's this uncertainty, and I think both the Federal Reserve and Congress are waiting to see in the next couple of months what happens. And then, you know, I've been impressed with Congress has done, and I know the Federal Reserve, we're prepared to do whatever we can to ensure that we build a bridge long enough to get us over the crisis and on to economic growth. Does doing whatever you can include having discussions about the possibility of buying equities if necessary? Is that debate being or has it been had? Well, let me think, talk through how we actually approach this, you know, from my vantage point. So we, as you noted, we want to make sure that financial markets work and we provide liquidity. So we started with uh, bond asset purchases and then we go in and we say, OK, what else is not working and how do we treat those? And so going into the corporate bond markets, really about ensuring that our largest businesses have the liquidity they need to fund themselves so that we don't lose another group of jobs that we could save simply by providing liquidity. And that's how we think about opening our facilities. So the discussions we're having about are where is the plumbing of the financial system still in need of repair? And that's how we decide. So if I um, infer from that, then the last thing you need to be doing right now is buying equities, given the bounce back that we've seen. It was about making sure that plumbing in the bond market, for example, and to your point, access to liquidity for companies was the greater issue here. And that's what you tackled. That's what we tackled, because we have ultimately we're the lender of last resort. We have lending powers, not spending powers. And so mm. our job is to ensure the free flow of credit by making sure that financial markets work. And that's what we focused all of our attention on. And, and so far, what you're seeing is the repairs are taking place. The financial system is working in the way that we would hope. And it's getting the money to the people who need it the most, households and businesses. During this pandemic, companies have raised a record amount of debt. And again, that's raising questions in certain quarters of 
the Federal Reserve fueling a corporate debt bubble. Any concerns about that from the Federal Reserve? So if you think about pre-COVID, we were already watching uh, leverage in the corporate debt market. And so that was something we came into. And companies that are better positioned and didn't acquire all this debt are going to be better positioned to survive the pandemic and emerge strong after the pandemic is over. But of course, right now, I, I really want to draw our attention back to the idea that we're providing emergency relief to build this bridge. And anytime a company fails, anytime a business fails, those are jobs that don't come back. And that's our key priority is try to ensure that every American has an opportunity to keep a job if it's possible and be bridged over the job loss if we can't keep that business afloat. So keeping businesses alive keeps jobs available. Is the biggest risk to the outlook here the health crisis and the handling of the health crisis? Because to your point, you stand ready to do more. Congress has surprised you in how quickly and in the scale that they've managed to provide support. Is it the health crisis that is the biggest risk to the economy today? It is absolutely the health crisis. And this puts us in an uncomfortable position we haven't been in in 100 years is that we don't control this. This is a medical crisis, a health crisis. And so we have to just respond while public health officials manage this and we move past the virus with either a vaccine or a mitigation strategy. Yeah, one of the big challenges, I think, for all at this moment. Um, Mary, I have seen you make some pretty bold statements in line with what Jay Powell said last week in Congress when he said there's no room for racism in American society. I just wanted to get your take both from an economic standpoint and the the uneven recovery that we're already seeing and this racial social change, I think, that we're seeing in this country. Where do you stand as, as president of the Federal Reserve of uh, San Francisco? Well, unequivocally, this is a bright line moment in the United States. We have no place for racism. It's not the promise we made. It's not good for our economy. It's not good for individuals. So it has this moral suasion. There's a moral reason for us to say no to racism. And there's also this economic piece. We are bridling ourselves. We're growing less quickly by not including all of our members. Think of all the talent we leave regularly on the table, sidelined for no reason other than they don't look like us then this is, this is an issue in the United States we have to tackle. It's the fair thing to do. It's the best thing to do for our global competitiveness. And ultimately, I think millions of Americans are standing up and saying, this is what we expect from our country. This is what we promised. Justice can for business, all. Can business, yes, justice for all. Can business do better, particularly in light of the yes. support, the emergency support? Yes. Yes, businesses can do better. We learned this actually in the pre-COVID period. We saw businesses reaching out to communities or individuals that they never would have given a second look to, but the labor market was tight. So they were reaching out. And what they learned is that those individuals who they might not have looked at before were valuable, were dedicated, were loyal. And so we've already learned. And now it's just taking that learning and remembering not to basically learn not to forget learn that those individuals are terrific employees, really valuable community members. And if we want healthy and productive communities, we have to include everyone. And I think businesses are prepared to do that. And we should hold all of ourselves, public officials, businesses, our communities accountable for delivering on that promise. Remember what you've learned and learn not to forget. 
Mary Daly, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for that. Thank you so President much. And CEO of the Federal Reserve at Bank of San Francisco. And get some coffee and some breakfast now, please. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Good morning. Thank you. Right. The Market Open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are open and up and running this morning. As expected, solid gains for U.S. stocks after some early session concerns. Let's call it that over the future of the U.S.-China trade agreement. President Trump signaling that he's all well with the deal and that that's also helping boost sentiment. It certainly turned futures around overnight. The Nasdaq once again in record territory. Just in terms of the individual sectors, retailers, energy, those stocks, sectors that will do well as the economy improves, they're all gaining in the session today. Despite those gains, though, there does remain a disconnect between cautious Wall Street firms and some of those retail investors that are enthusiastic about economic reopenings or at least enthusiastic about beaten up stocks. Let's be clear. JP Morgan says it believes the easy money has been made and that investors should become more selective now in how they invest. Goldman Sachs says retail investors have done better than the pros at calling the bottom of the stock market's coronavirus sell-off. They tracked a portfolio of stocks popular with at-home traders, which is in fact up 61% since late March, while an index of shares widely held by professional managers is only up 45%, and the S&P, of course, is up some 36%. Claire Sebastian reports on this entirely new breed of investor. If I lose half a milli on spirit because they go bankrupt, so be it. At the beginning of May, sports blogger and social media celebrity Dave Portnoy invested a million dollars in Spirit Airlines. He says at almost the exact same time as this news broke. Taking flight, Warren Buffett reveals Berkshire Hathaway has sold its U.S. airline stocks. Warren Buffett's decision, we should note, was based on his view that it would take years for air travel to recover. Still, as Spirit's stock doubled over the next month, Portnoy didn't hold back. I said Warren Buffett, that old man, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm better than he is. It's a fact. Before the pandemic, Dave Portnoy, founder of website Barstool Sports, was better known for being thrown out of the Super Bowl and harassing female journalists, including a years-long campaign against ESPN host Samantha Ponder. He dismisses this, saying his style is to make jokes online. Half a mil of chewy. Ding, 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 ding. I've always been an avid sports gambler. And once Corona hit and sports kind of stopped, uh, I was looking for something to do, something to create content with. In March, he put $3 million of his own money into an E-Trade account, came up with a name for his new trading operation, Davey Day Trader Global, or DDTG, and coined a simple mantra. Stocks always go up. And for several months, the S&P 500 proved him right. As the market surged from its March lows, Portnoy both tapped into and some believe helped fuel a flood of amateur investors into the stock market. Commission-free trading platforms like Robinhood, E-Trade and TD Ameritrade reporting big increases in trading volume and account openings. What Dave Portnoy has done is he's made investing fun. Now, just because it's fun doesn't necessarily mean you should take it lightly. It's money. You should take it very, very seriously. It's not gambling. These investors have taken risks, including piling into bankrupt stocks like Hertz. 
And yet some experts say the amateurs, especially younger ones, were quicker to call the bottom. Way back in March, when this first started, the cruise lines, we saw our millennial clients start to buy Carnival Cruise. The rest of our population, you know, the more traditional, if you will, population, didn't really start to buy it until mid-April. One of those millennials was Sean Cassidy, a 29-year-old employee at a defense contractor, also in the past a sports gambler. In early April, he took his tax refund and government stimulus check and put it all into his E-Trade account. A lot of travel stocks, um, definitely a lot of what the court has talked about, you know, the cruise stocks, the airline stocks, life is going to get back to normal something and you got to just hold your hat to that and when that happens, people are going to fly again, people are going to go on cruises again. So far, he's seeing a 50% return on his $6,000 investment. He follows Dave Portnoy but says he takes a lot of his advice with a grain of salt. You just take a couple letters, you mush them together, you press buy, buy, buy. And even Portnoy himself admits his winning streak may not last. If you told me I had a guarantee that stocks are just going to go up every single day like it does for the next decade, well, then I'd quit my job and just do this because there's nothing more profitable. But I don't think that's the case. I think eventually it'll stop. I just don't know when. Claire Sebastian, CNN, New York. The critical difference there, not quitting the day job versus just being able to trade on the side. One, it's a career and it's your life versus gambling or playing on the stock market. You don't second guess yourself. Perhaps that's the difference here. All right, let's move on. Six investment groups have signed the world's biggest energy infrastructure deal this year in the UAE, worth over $20 billion. They're buying 49% of a portfolio of gas pipelines leased from the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. John Defterius spoke with the oil giant CEO. This deal, as you know, will deliver uh, over $10 billion US dollars of FDI for ADNOC and the UAE. And if it wasn't for uh, the differentiated value proposition provided by the UAE, by Abu Dhabi, and by ADNOC to such uh, strategic and important investors, they would not have taken such a bold decision to move ahead and to uh, proceed with this very important transaction. Uh, In our view, it is a big achievement, given, of course, the current uh, economic climate. And it is a true uh, validation also uh, of the world-class nature of our uh, portfolio of assets. This is a quite different in a sense that your investment pool ranges from those in the United States and Canada, in Europe, and even stretching to Asia. Even in a low-price gas environment, they're still willing to proceed. But what is the potential return for them uh, putting this sort of money on the table? This is uh, an investment into uh, a selection or a group of uh, gas pipelines uh, for a 49% into uh, the gas pipelines against a 10.1 billion US dollar at a valuation of uh, 20.7 billion US dollars. Uh, This is uh, simply built on uh, the framework of partnerships that we have been working on since the the beginning of the transformation of of ADNOC in 2016. And as part of our value maximization uh, strategy launched in 2017. And uh, like the UAE, uh, we like to build bridges uh, between uh, countries and nations and cultures. You know, many of the IOCs are cutting 15 to 25 percent of their workforce. Uh, It's the opposite with ADNOC right now. You're not retrenching. You're actually building uh, by going into oil, new facilities and gas. 
uh, facilities at the same time. We are very much focused uh, on what we can control, and that is our cost. Uh, and regardless of the situation, this focus on cost will not change, uh, regardless of the circumstance or the environment. And our strategic aim is to always be one of the lowest cost producers uh, in the world. And that hasn't uh, in any way impacted our business plans as far as our strategic projects are concerned. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, from an NBA superstar to a super successful investor, David Robinson joins us to discuss racism, education and giving back. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. David Robinson, an NBA legend and now a successful businessman, is using his skills to give back to minority communities, mainly via the route of education. The former basketball pro is a two-time NBA champion, basketball hall of famer, and the winner of two Olympic gold medals. Wowzers. Robinson, also known as the Admiral, co-founded private equity firm Admiral Capital Group. And I'm very excited to say he joins us now on the show. David, wow, that's one heck of a CV, I have to say. I think everyone watching is intimidated. Great to have you on the show. Talk to me about how you decided this was the way that you wanted to tackle the next stage of your career and give back to minority communities. Yeah, well, as, a, as a basketball player, it was an incredible platform. Obviously, everyone knows the popularity of the NBA. So it was an incredible platform, not just to obviously go play basketball and be fantastic. Uh, we have San Antonio has been a great team for a long time, but, uh, but also to impact the people in the communities where we're playing. Uh, so we started in education about 20-something years ago, uh, building schools. And now in San Antonio, we have 26 schools. And, and through IDEA Public Schools Network, we have 90, 98 schools across uh, Texas and Louisiana. And we're sending kids to college. So it was a great platform to start uh, doing some positive things. And that led into business, which I felt like was uh, another fantastic platform. It's just amazing. I want to talk about what you're seeing in those schools and how you've grown that first. But just explain to me how you're doing it, because you're giving away a chunk of the profits from your investments in the fund and using that to build these schools. Right. We, we built our, our firm saying, wait, 10 percent of our profits are going to go back into the communities where we're investing. And we're going to build that, you know, over time. We've been at it now for about 13 or 14 years. And we've, we've been able to do a few little things here and there. But we've built on the education foundation, which I started in the NBA. And as we as we grow our pool of cash, uh, we're able to do even more things. Talk about what you're seeing in terms of performance, of education of these children, how well they're doing and thriving in these schools. Yeah, no, we build our, all of our schools in, in low income areas. It's, it's the idea of public schools network, fastest growing charter school system in the United States. Um, it, I think uh, in the last uh, study, it was the third highest performing char charter school system. So doing incredibly well. Uh, we're sending 100% of our kids to college uh, over the last 14 years as we grow. So growing at an incredible rate and getting kids to college. So, you know, our, our big thing is starting them really early and getting them focused so that by the time they graduate from high school, they're a great a grade and a half above grade level. And they've taken between 10 and 12 AP courses. So they're college prepared. And that's the that's the biggest thing. It gets them confident and understanding that they belong in those colleges. So if we send them to a Notre Dame or or a 
Navy or a Harvard that they feel like they're prepared to do the work. For me, this is at the root of the challenges in inequality and the gap that we see in the United States at this moment. It comes down to education. Why can't we do what you are doing in these chartered schools more broadly in the United States? What's the block? What's the gap? Well, there's a lot of blocks, and I think there's a lot of, you know, unfortunately, in the United States, I think we've had a lot of institutional blocks. That's why people are talking about the institutional racism. I think it's it's difficult. These communities have been built a certain way for a reason, right? If you have a highway that you build through a community, you can block commerce from going across that highway. So we have these incredible disparities in statistics. So if you say, if I live on the south side of I-35, then I, I'm, I have a 10% of 10% chance for my child to go to college. But if I live on the north side, then I have a 77% chance for my child to go to college. If, if I live on the south side, then I'm going to cost, every person's going to cost the government $150,000 a year. Whereas on the other side, you're going to contribute $200,000 to the economy. So those statistics are consistent across cities and states across the United States. I mean, we built these communities intentionally the way we have. And now it's our job to tap into this resource, our children, and, and begin to give them the opportunity to excel and contribute to our society. So it's education, it's geography and the setup of cities. There's so many things that need to be combined here to tackle some of these challenges. Um, David, there is a wake-up call, I think, going on in the United States. It's been long overdue. How do we make sure that the, the movement that we're seeing now, the focus isn't just on the surface, but actually it results in fundamental change? And I'm not just talking about uh, judicial change and, and changes to police forces, but something more fundamental that allows a more inclusive society. Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, I, I think changing the laws are important and making sure that, you know, you're giving people opportunity, right? But you know, changing hearts is the number one thing. You know, I always, I wake up in the morning, I read the Bible, but I think about the prodigal, um, I mean, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? It, I think it's our hearts understanding that if people are hurting on the other side of town, then then eventually that's going to get to us, right? That Like, we need to go out of our way to go help people who are hurting. And, and in the United States, I think we've been really good at that for the most part. I mean, we have a very generous nation, but um, I think we, we can't ignore racism. We can't ignore some of the things that we've done wrong as a country so that we can learn from those and grow and go forward. I've gotten a chance to serve in the military, play in the Olympics, wear USA across my chest. I, I love the United States, but there are a lot of things we do wrong. So I, I think the biggest thing is changing hearts, getting people to understand the systems that we have in place the answers aren't to build more police, you know, build more jails and add more police to the street. The answers are to educate and give opportunity and then provide that opportunity for those kids to grow. Two generations ago, my grandfather grew up in a segregated Little Rock, Arkansas. And my, my mother grew up in a segregated Columbia, South Carolina. And, you know, now I have the opportunity to, to do well financially, to help my community. My children believe that they can go and be the next president of the United States. So. Um, a lot has changed in two generations, and it shows the resilience of our country. And I think we'll we'll continue to grow and learn. Awesome. We'll watch the name for the one of the next presidents, at least, uh, David. Fantastic, <laughs> too. <laughs> Fantastic to have you with us. You clearly have a huge heart, too, sir. Come back and speak to us soon, please. Great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Appreciate being thank on. You. Thank you, David Robinson and Anna, sir. Thank you. All right.
Coming up after the break, the U.S. tech sector criticizes new restrictions on visas for foreign workers, saying they'll make America less competitive. We'll discuss. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Twitter, Google, Amazon and other tech firms are posing new restrictions on U.S. skilled migration. The Trump administration says around half a million unemployed Americans will benefit from the suspension of several foreign visa categories, including intra-company transfers. The move affects professions ranging from scientists to journalists to au pairs. Brian Fung joins us now. Brian, the challenge, I think, coming from the tech sector specifically is, look, we've got a talent shortage. This makes no sense. Talk us through it. Yeah, the tech industry is not happy with the White House this morning. Uh, The president's policy here is to restrict visas in key categories, including the H-1B visa for skilled workers, uh, the L-1 visa for overseas workers that tech companies want to migrate to the United States. And thousands of these visas are given out every year. But the president is saying that this order, uh, extension, extending these restrictions, is about preserving U.S. jobs. Uh, Now, Obviously, tech companies are uh, expressing deep concerns over this uh, approach. And here's a taste of some of the reactions we've been getting um, from Amazon. This company said, preventing high-skilled professionals from entering the country and contributing to econo- America's economic recovery puts Americans' global uh, competitiveness at risk. Now, Google also saying, America's continued success depends on companies having access to the best talent from around the world. Particularly now, we need that talent to help contribute to America's economic recovery. Obviously, this highlights deep tensions between Silicon Valley and Washington as the two remain at loggerheads over both not just immigration, but also issues including competition and antitrust. Uh, Julia? Yeah, absolutely. Brian, great to have you with us. Uh, Brian Fung, not the only nation, of course, that's trying to protect home talent and home voters, of course, but um, the timing here, of course, key. Brian, thank you for that. All right, that just about wraps up the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe, and I'll see you tomorrow, as always. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.